Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We've completed all the way through Romans chapter 6. As we start on Romans chapter 7, we're just going to go through a few verses because I want to set up some things for the rest of the book of, pardon me, for the rest of the chapter 7, and really for some of the themes about the law that keep coming up in the rest of the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Last week, as we studied Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, we saw that Paul is not condoning physical slavery, but he uses it as an example to talk about what it means to be a slave of Christ. This week, we see that Paul is using marriage as an example to talk about being bound to Christ. He's not actually talking about the specific details of marriage, divorce, or adultery. He's not saying that a woman who remarries after a legitimate divorce is committing adultery. That's not the statement that he's making. It's, sometimes these passages have been taken and sort of interpreted that way, but that's not what he's talking about. And his focus here is not primarily on marriage, divorce, or even adultery. He's saying that in a marriage, the spouses are bound to each other. Just as people were bound to the law before Christ. But having now died to the law, having the old self crucified, we are no longer bound to the law. We have been raised up to new life and are now bound to Christ in a wonderfully liberating, life-giving, fruit-bearing way. That's what he's making the contrast about. That's why he's bringing up this example, right? And, you know, when we get into Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he asks another rhetorical question. We just went through two rhetorical questions, right? Should we continue to sin because grace is bounding? No, certainly not. Should we continue to sin because we're not under the law? No, you know, certainly not. And then in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he asks another rhetorical question. Is the law sin? No, certainly not. 
but we're getting to that. So how do you get to where you can say, I understand what the law is about and why he even asked that question or why people may have considered the law to be somehow sin, right? Why would they even think like that? What was the reason for that? And we'll consider all of these things as we keep going and we'll come back to Romans chapter 7 verse 5, the verse that we read today, which says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. And that's a very interesting phrase about that the sinful passions aroused by the law were, uh, was at work in us. So we'll get to that next, in the next session and you know, we'll talk about those two things, those, those ideas. What does it mean that sin would be working in us that way or sin is made aware of in our lives through the law. Right now, I want to focus more on what is this law of God that, that Romans is pointing to, that Paul is pointing to, that he's referring to like this. So just as it was necessary for us to better understand the grace of God in order to understand justification by faith, I mean, you had to understand what was this grace, right? How did it come to us? What was this meaning of it? Then you were able to say, oh, I've been justified by faith and I received this righteousness of God. So just as understanding the grace of God was necessary to understand justification by faith and righteousness, it is necessary for us to better understand the law of God to understand then how we have been freed from the law or from the burden of the law, why we are no longer bound to the law and how Christ seeks for us to be bound to him. Right? We have to understand. So what is the law about? And then we can understand these specific sort of statements. So what is the law of God? Or more specifically, what is the purpose of the law of God? The first point I want to make is this. The law of God enables us to love God. And you may not think of that as the first thing. Right? You may not think of the law of God is what enables me to love God. Because when you think of law... Typically, you're thinking of rules, commands, decrees, you know, some, some regulation, something that is imposed on you, something that restricts, something that bound, you know, that, that, that sort of is constricting in some way. Oh, you know, I wish I could, I wish I could drive at any speed on the, on the road and, you know, they just have to go and put the speed limit. You know, it, 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 you think of laws in that way, right? But, and, and, and when you think about the laws of God, many times, although this is now becoming a little bit more rarer in society around us, when you think of the law, you may think of the Ten Commandments. In the past, that would have been true that you could, you could even, to somebody who's not going to church, they may, they may have heard about the Ten Commandments. Today, that's a little rarer. So that's not our common context anymore, common cultural context. So you can't walk up to somebody and appeal to the Ten Commandments as a means of talking about the law of God. Right? But we, we are familiar with the law of God as, as described in the Ten Commandments, and we see all of these statements that are made there, and there are lots of other decrees and laws and so on. But, but here's the statement that I would make about the law of God. The law of God, in total, can be described as the instructions, commands, decrees, and absolute standard of God for humanity. And that's important to understand. God is making a statement that is very absolute. You read the commands of God and it doesn't say, if you feel like it, obey this. 
right? It doesn't say when it's convenient for you, obey this, right? It, it makes very absolute statements. You must not. You shall not. You do not, right? I mean, you, I mean very absolute terms that he, that he speaks in. And you wonder, you know, what is the reason for that? And the reason for God being absolute with humanity is because God is absolute. There is no gray. There is no shadow of turning with God. There is no, you know, there is no mixture in God. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-pure, all-holy, all-love. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when he speaks in absolute terms, he's revealing his character and his attributes. He can't speak to us in any other way. He can't say, be somewhat holy. He has to say, be holy, because he is holy. He says, love unconditionally. Why? Because he loves unconditionally. He says, forgive. Why? Because he forgives. So he speaks in absolute terms because that's his character. That's who he is. So when we relate to God, we don't and we should be careful not to relate to God as we relate to other people. Because when we relate to other people, we don't relate in absolutes. We, well, we demand absolutes from other people, but we don't really live that out ourselves or really expect that from other people, right? Because that's not quite our character or our attributes. And what do we do with God? We do the same. We come to God and we say, well, God, how could you possibly expect me to do this? Right? But that's who God is. He couldn't do anything else. He has to speak to us in absolutes. He has to say these things. And so we say, oh, God, thank you that you speak in these absolutes because Thank you that that's who you are. Just imagine if you were worshiping a God that was not holy, not fully holy, not fully good, not, you know, you weren't quite confident that when he said, I'm faithful, I'll, I'll be with you, when he made a promise, you're not quite sure if that's true. Just imagine worshiping a God like that. How much better that our God is absolute, that he says, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I relate to you, right? And we say, great, wonderful. That is actually a freedom and a joy for us, not a burden. But we have to see it that way. So we have to have that perspective so that when we say, oh, God has given me this command, we don't say, oh. We say, oh, God has given me this command. It reflects who he is, and he's asking me to do this. Oh, thank God that he is that way, that he is able to bless me in this way. Then through that law of God, as he reveals his character and attributes, he is desiring for us to be like him, to be with him. So he says, be holy, because I'm holy, so that you can come and be with me, so that you can worship me, so that you can boldly enter into my presence, so that you can be blessed. I want to take you in my, in my embrace, but guess what? I need you to be cleaned up. I need you to be washed by the blood of Jesus. I need you to be pure because I'm pure. And that's beautiful. That's very reassuring. And in showing us what it would take for human beings to approach him, to be with him, God must state his law in absolute terms. That's the only way he could. 
So when we think of the law of God, and we consider all these decrees, and I'm not going into the detail on the Ten Commandments, each of the Ten Commandments, but along with the Ten Commandments, there were several other decrees and commands that God gave and that are collectively referred to as the law of Moses. Right? And so in the Bible, particularly as we look at the first five books, the, what's recorded as Moses having written the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the five books, you know, we regard those books as the law of Moses. But when God, or pardon me, God speaks of it like, Jesus speaks of it like this, but when the Bible then refers to the law and the prophets, it's really referring to the entire Old Testament. It's not just those five books, right? And the New Testament is really a commentary on the Old Testament. When Paul speaks, when, when he writes to the Romans, when he's writing to the Ephesians, when the Gospels are written, it's a fulfillment, it's a commentary on what was already spoken in the Old Testament. They're all completely connected. There is no break. There is no you know, something here and something there that are completely different from each other. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. No, it's the same God. And he's speaking the same way and he's dealing with the people in the same way. Which is why, as we talked about in previous weeks, it's not the law that saves us. It's not the keeping of the law that saves us. It's the fact that we believe in Jesus. It's the fact that we are justified by faith just as Abraham was justified by faith and was counted to him as righteousness. And so we come to this Lord Jesus in the same way. Right? So what is, this, what is he doing with all of these laws and decrees and you know, so on? Why does he give these commands? Did he think that human beings would be able to fully obey them? You know, was, was God surprised when Adam sinned? You know, did he say, oh God, you know, Adam, go do this. Here, I've created you. I've done all these things, given you a perfect place. And then he was shocked that Adam sinned? No. You know what the Bible says? It's very clear in Scripture that having given human beings the free will to choose, God knew that they would sin. God knew that they would walk in their own way and that they would not adhere to absolute standards, that we would break our relationship with him. And even before the creation of the world, God had purpose for Jesus to come and restore that broken relationship. What a glorious statement Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 makes. And we read this and studied this you know, more than two years ago when we were in the book of Ephesians. But Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 it says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God had purposed all this before even the creation of the world. He so longs to be in relationship with us that he said, I will create these beings who have the capacity to disobey me and I will prepare a way to bring them back into relationship with me. So that when they violate my standards, my absolute standards, I will give the way by which they can be reconciled to me. That's amazing. And so what we sang about this morning, the amazing grace of God, the amazing love of God. You see, God gave the law so that we would know that we need a savior. 
He's saying, look, as you try to obey this law, as you try to keep these commands, as you try to live a holy life, you realize that you need a Savior. You realize that you need to be justified by faith. You realize that you need a perfect sacrifice that will come. Right? It is not the keeping of the law. It is God's provision of the perfect resolution for our not being able to keep the law that shows God's love for us. If God had just said, ah, I love you. Okay, yeah, I think he loves me. But God showed his love for us that when we were not able to keep the law, he provided a way for us to be saved. That's amazing. So God gives us the law so that we may more fully appreciate the depth of his love for us. God gives us the law so that we may truly love him. So that we can say, oh, I, I see this. I understand this. This law is not a burden. This is not, a, this is not an imposition. This is to show me how much you love me and how I can love you. So I am not bound by the structure of the law. I'm not going through every day, oh, I better obey the law. Oh, God, God is going to strike me down with a lightning bolt. You know, I mean, This is not the way I'm living my life. I'm living my life to say, oh God, thank you for loving me, and I want to love you. And in loving you, I obey your commands. I keep your law. My, the law is no longer a burden. The law is liberating me. It's enabling me to respond in love to you. Right? Which also means that the law of God enables us to love people. As much as the law of God enables us to love God, the law of God enables us to love people. The law of God is helping us to see that when we look around and we see others, when we see them as equally flawed and sinful as we are, but by the grace of God, equally loved by God as we are, then we are able to love them ourselves. If you look at another person and you say, oh, ah, look at what they're doing, look at what they're saying, look at what they're wearing, look at where they're going, look at what they're reading, look at what they're watching, you know, if that's your response to the person that you are looking at, then you will never love that person. But if you would look at that person by first considering how the Lord has looked at you. And then you look at that person and you say, here's a person who is equally flawed like me, but equally loved by God. Then you're able to love that person. Then you're able to say, oh, I want to care for you. I want to pray for you. I want to stand with you. I want to encourage you. And I want you to encourage me. I want you to stand with me. I want you to pray for me. So we are able to stand with one another as we look at how we are to love each other. When Jesus was asked what the, it was a singular, right? The, the Pharisees came to him and others even had asked this, but there was a sort of a test given to Jesus. And, and they came to him in Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew 22. Uh, they came to him and said, what is the greatest commandment in the law, right? Of all of these laws, more than 600 laws and decrees and so on, in the law of Moses, which one is the greatest? And they were sort of trying to see what he would say. And they asked for one. Right? 
Jesus replied, and many of you may be familiar with this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that really encapsulates pretty much the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments. Loving God, responding to God, worshiping God, not dishonoring God, not you know, uh, worshiping any other gods, you know, doing all of that. right? Honoring God in that way and honoring parents and so on. So the f idea that you know, we would love God with all that is in us, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, he said, Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. And he could have stopped right there. But he didn't. He said, and the second is like it. They came asking him for one. He said, this is the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, which means what? He's equating the two. He's not just saying the second is a little inferior to it. He says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets shorthand for the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If Jesus found it necessary to answer the question about what is the greatest commandment by saying here are the two greatest commandments, then you have to understand that he's equating that and, and keeping those two of equal value. That we have to love God and we have to love people. There is a response on our part. Now, you can't love people if you don't love God. And your statement of, I love God, but I don't love people, is a questionable one. Right? Because if you truly are loving God, you will love people. Right? Now, let me, one of the things we were talking about yesterday in the men's fellowship, it's not actually possible to do the reverse. You can't love people and then somehow figure out how to love God. Because what you will do is you will try to please people. You will try to do what people want. You will try to go where people say. And if you start there, you won't get to God. But if you start with God, you're able to get to loving people. So here we have this statement that when we love God and love people, we will seek to please God and serve people. Right? We will seek to please God and serve people. Our strongest expression of that love for God and service to people is to obey God by making disciples. And so the law of God equips us to make disciples. You see, it's when we understand that God loves us so much, that he gave everything so, for us, that we would not perish and have it, but that we would have eternal life, and that he longs for us to love him and to love others. It is only then that we can actually fulfill the Lord's command to make disciples. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Again, all familiar verses, but I want to remind us of these things so that they're reinforced to give us foundations for what we need to build on, right? But what does he say? Notice what he says. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Ethnos is the word, where we get multi-ethnic and ethnic and so on. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Water baptism, what we talked about a few you know, weeks ago. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching people the law of God. Teaching people the word of God. Teaching people what God's absolute standards are. Go and do this. Make disciples. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So God's giving us a commission to go and make disciples using what? The word of God, the law of God, the commands of God. He's not saying go and tell them how to you know, follow whatever thing you are part of or some rules that you came up with or your church or your denomination, nothing like that. He says go and tell people how they can follow my commands. Teach them. That means that the process of making disciples is, involves us learning and applying the word of God, the law of God. We have a responsibility as we live life together in a church to come together, to fellowship together, but most importantly, to share and encourage with one another to learn and apply the law of God. So that we would say to each other, hey, this is what I learned, or this is what the Lord is showing me. And the other person would be able to say the same back to you. And we're able to say, oh, let's stand together in this. Let's worship together in this. Let's believe the Lord together for, the, for this. And it takes our individual and, more importantly, our collective study of the word and its application to make disciples. And we model this commands of God, these the obedience to the commands of God in each other's lives. We speak words of grace to each other to build and strengthen one another. We exercise spiritual gifts and we pray for one another and we help each other even when we make mistakes and stumbles and we will make mistakes and stumble. Discipleship can be very messy, right? It is in that process that we are able to mutually edify one another. That means not just about a sermon on a Sunday morning. It's not just about listening to one person speak. It's about all our sermon discussion, prayer meetings, fellowship meetings, uh, Bible studies, uh, whatever, uh, and, and every testimony that you hear. You know, yesterday, you know, we had some great testimonies that we were listening to and, you know, the things that encouraged us. But it's every one of those opportunities. It's every celebration. It's every walk in the park. It's every fun and recreational opportunity, apple picking, whatever it may be. It's all of those things coming together that we would say, let's make disciples. Let's make disciples. Let's continue to build one another up. Let's continue to seek God and his word so that we may love God, love people, and make disciples. Now, let me make one more point about this. When we talk about making disciples, I'm not talking about simply some, something that is only focused on the Bible. Right? When, I, when I say learning the word of God and applying the word of God, I'm so talking about how it affects your personal and physical lives, including your body, your mind. You know, what do you do? How, what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you, what are you thinking? Taking captive every thought. All of that comes into play. What are you doing with your physical body? Are you being disciplined, diligent? Uh, are you, you know, is there something affecting your physical body that we need to be engaged with as a body, as a body of Christ to pray for and to so on? So there's the personal, physical aspect of maturing. There's communication, 
there's learning how to speak the word of God. There's a, 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 a work of God that is happening in us that tames our tongues and helps us to communicate the truth of God. There is the financial aspect of maturing in Christ so that we are good stewards of the resources he has given to us and we're following biblical money management principles of saving and investing and you know, delaying gratification and so on. And there is also the character and ethical maturity that needs to take place that we would say, are we making sound decisions? Are we acting ethically? Are we showing mercy? Are we loving justice? Are we willing to demonstrate courage under fire? So there's a whole aspect of the character and ethical behavior that would be part of our maturity. There is the relational and social aspect of our maturing in the Lord, where we, are, we would pay attention to our marriages, we would pay attention to our parenting, we'd pay attention to our relationships with one another, and we say, Lord God, help me to build up in this area. So it's not, and then finally, lastly, there, there's the whole aspect of growing in leadership and in the impacts of how we would be leading in the church, right? And, and again, leadership and, and this idea of of leading in the church is not about standing in the front and preaching. It's about doing any particular task and doing that for the glory of God and for the building of the church, right? So in all these ways, in all these areas, I'm not talking about simply saying, well, I know what Romans 6.23 says, right? Uh, I can quote the verse or I can quote 100 verses or I know exactly I can win every Bible quiz. No, it's not just about that. Right? It is about the fact that you would be able to say, Lord God, help me to mature in every one of these areas, in every one of these areas as a disciple of Christ. And in doing so, I'm able to encourage my brother and my sister, and they're able to encourage me. So we love God, love people, we make disciples. At the end of a month, at the end of a year, at the end of 10 years, we should be evaluating and saying, have I matured as a disciple of Christ in every area, in all these areas in my life? Am I seeing progress? Am I growing in the Lord? And that brings us to this point of application this morning. We respond and apply by living at, oh, by loving God. I shouldn't say by living. It's by, we respond and apply by loving God, loving people, and making disciples. You know, this church at New Life Fellowship Church, we use that phrase, that, that tagline as our mission statement. And really, it's the mission statement of any church. We want to love God. We want to love people. We want to make disciples. It's very simple. Right? It's very straightforward. There is nothing complicated about what the church is about. What is New Life Fellowship Church about? Well, we want to love God, love people, and make disciples. That's straightforward. And as we do that, we have to really say, Lord, what, sh what does that look like? What does that mean in our daily lives? Who should I connect with? Who can I pray with? Who can I encourage in the Lord? How do I stand with this body of believers? And therefore, as a body of believers, how can we touch the community? How can we reach people outside? How can we minister to someone who is in need? Maybe close in close physical proximity, maybe a distant, you know, distance away, maybe family member, maybe somebody who is just a friend of a friend that we hear about and we start to pray for together as a church, whatever it may be. But what is the way 
in which we can stand together to love God, love people, and make disciples. That's our call. That's our commitment. We're not stating this tagline, this mission statement, just, you know, oh, it sounds good, let's put that up. We're saying this is what we're about. As a church, we want this to be true. When people come into the church, regardless of whether they're here for two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years, right? It doesn't matter. Do they see a group of people who are committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples? Right? Not the programs, not, the, not, the, not anything else, but truly focused on these things. Because when we understand this, when we appropriate this for ourselves, when we say, oh, Lord, this is, this is what we want to see happen, you enable this. Then the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord is no longer binding. It's not restricting. We're not under the law. The law of the Lord is a joy. We share it. We say, oh, let's, let's, let's move in this way. Let's mature as disciples of Christ. Let's worship him and have him come and have his, make his dwelling in our midst. This morning again, as we conclude, I want to encourage you, don't let the word just be heard and then lost. Let it get into you. Let it bear fruit. If you want to stay here after the service and continue to pray for a while, you can do that. Right? But I want to encourage you at home, through the week, through the months, you know, just be saying, Lord, what, how does this look? What should this look like in my life? Have, have I been bound to the law, trying to fulfill some requirements? Oh, I better do this. What will people think? Oh, I better do this. I've been told I should do that. Oh, I better do this. I'm a Christian. You know, I mean, are you bound by the law in that regard? Or are you bound to Christ willingly? Are you, have you embraced Christ willingly and said, oh, God, I want to be with you. I want to love you. I want to, I want to be intimate in relationship with you. And it's not about what people say. It's about what you are saying to me and what you feel, that I would be able to come close to you and love you and therefore love others. Oh, Lord God, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to be. As a church, that's where we want to be. So this morning, I pray that this will encourage you, will strengthen you, will set the, will set the tone so that as we continue to read about the law, that you will say, oh, I see what this is about. The law is not sin. The law arouses, we'll get to that passage again, like I said, arouses all these things, but oh, I, I treasure this. I welcome the command of God. I I am so grateful for the standards of God. Thank God. So this morning, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is good, that it is, Lord, that we taste it and we find that it is good for us. It blesses us. Oh, we thank you, Lord, that your word encourages us to love you, to love other people, and to make disciples. Help us, Lord, to put that into practice in every possible way that we can. And help us, Lord, to pay attention to your Holy Spirit leading and guiding and directing us so that, Father, in these coming days, we will be maturing as disciples of Christ. We will love the law 
We will hide the law, the word, in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. We will consider your word and your law as a light to our path and, oh Lord, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and it will be what guides and directs us. Lord, as we consider your law, it will prompt us to love you even more because, Lord, when we couldn't keep the law, you gave yourself for us. Oh, we thank you for all of that. We thank you for what this means for us. And we praise you, Lord. Father, in every opportunity that we have, whether it's some meeting or activity of the church, or whether it's just something that you prompt us to, Lord, we, you bring somebody to mind, you, Lord, we get a phone call or we call somebody else, whatever way it may be, help us, Lord, this week, this month, for our days, Lord, to connect with somebody and to bless them, to be a blessing to them and for them to be a blessing to us. Grant us grace, Lord, that together, together we will live out the mission of the child of God, the mission that you've called each one of us individually and all of us collectively. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.